great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined today by Klaus Badenhagen. Good to be back. Hi, Gavin. And Sean Su. Yeah, also fantastic to be back. Tonight, we'll be discussing the KMT's U.S. envoy raising some rather iry feelings after saying America has no legal basis to assert that the Taiwan Strait is an international waterway. The Council of Indigenous Peoples opposing official indigenous status by the Pingpu people. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs cheering Tuvalu's foreign minister for walking out of a United Nations conference. That after China blocked the participation of three Taiwanese members of his delegation. European representative offices here warning of the negative effects of the government's bilingual 2030 policy and what it's having on European language studies in Taiwan. And a spooky exhibition in Tainan paralyzing ticket sales and its contents causing some controversy. But we'll begin with a controversy following a decision on a topic we talked about last week, that being electricity rate hikes. The Ministry of Economic Affairs on Monday announced that large industrial consumers will see their electricity rates rise by 15% from today. Now, according to the ministry, the price rise comes on the back of soaring global energy prices. Prior to the official announcement, reports had been saying the rate hike could be around 8%. But the final change means that some 22,000 large industrial users will have to pay 15% more for high voltage and ultra high voltage electricity. The rate for high voltage consumption will be raised to 3.1039 NT per kilowatt hour, while extra high voltage users will see an increase to 2.5707 NT per kilowatt hour. Households consuming more than 1,000 kilowatt hours of electricity per month will see their rates rise by 9%. For each additional kilowatt hour consumed and across the board, electricity prices are rising by an average of 8.4%. However, residential users consuming less than 1,000 kilowatt hours per month will not see any changes to their electricity rates whatsoever. And that accounts for some 97% of households across the island. While the rate hikes are also not being applied to small businesses, low voltage consumers and schools at high school level and below. Now, while many people were pleased that their electricity bills won't be going up, the move still left some people fuming with charges that the central government's energy policy is misguided and is to blame for the high prices themselves. Now, the Taiwan Association of Machinery Industry described the 15% rise as being too much and well above the anticipated 8% increase. Now, according to that association, it will undoubtedly drive up the manufacturing costs of its member companies, which will in turn be passed on to consumers. And the association says that its members are not ruling out industry-wide protests against the pay rise. Now, the KMT, meanwhile, cried foul and accused the government of failing to set across the board electricity rates simply to appease the majority of voters ahead of the November local elections. And Economics Minister Wang Meihua spent much of this week defending the rate hike, arguing that the cost of electricity here in Taiwan is still lower than that of many other countries. So, Sean, I mean, will your company be paying more? Uh, Actually... Probably, but we're not really even that concerned because the reality is, um, even if it's a, it's not going to be fifteen percent. But even then, I mean, I just don't think Taiwan charges that much overall for electricity, even with a fifteen percent hike for certain industries. The the reason is because 
I mean, if you look at for everybody, right, um, the reality is Taiwan has one of the lowest uh, electricity or the cheapest rates in the world. And other countries, due to the raising, rising gas prices and energy prices, have rose their electricity prices by 13 to 45 percent. So, you know, I mean, uh, this is just really in line. Uh, I, you know, I understand some industries said, you know, they, they were they did not expect this rise. They're very angry at this. But the reality is, yes, our industries do use a lot of electricity. Uh, for instance, uh, TC, uh, TSMC use it themselves, right, which is the world's largest chip manufacturer, uses about five to six percent of all the energy in Taiwan. That's a lot. And, you know, the entire sector uses about like about 37 percent of all the electricity in Taiwan. So we have all these, um, you know, power plants, renewable energy, all the stuff that we're creating really just to subsidize uh, uh, our, 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 you know, our, our, our industries. And almost they account for almost half of it, too. And then I think what uh, metal, the metal basic industry takes up about 12 percent of all the energy, metal product manufacturing, 5 percent, non-metal mineral product manufacturing, 4 percent. That's a lot of energy that they're taking, you know, for this. So I do think that they should pay their share. Um, and then furthermore, uh, Taiwan, uh, in terms of regular users like disposable income, you know, Taiwan's already one of the lowest. I mean, you look at Germany, they pay 4.89%. You look at Norway, 0.93%. Canada, 1%. United States, 1.24%. Taiwan, we pay about 0.83%. So it's very low, you know, um, in terms of how much disposable income that people have that they're paying for electricity. Yes, I do. In a sense, I kind of do understand claims that you know, uh, the Taiwan government is essentially subsidizing the electricity use of everybody, uh, you know, regular people out there, you know, for your home, your apartment, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is the vast majority, the biggest energy users in Taiwan is still the industries. So um, I just don't feel it's that big of a rise. Uh, you know, it's just expected. And the government did say that they would consider lowering the prices, uh, you know, when energy costs like, you know, uh, for LNG, for coal, etc., all that, that uh, you know, sources do drop. It's just the fact that electricity in Taiwan is ridiculously low because the government is basically making up for the losses that Thai Power incurs because they are selling electricity for less than it costs them to generate it. And it's the thing with subsidies. I mean, once you get used to it, when someone wants to take it away from you, then you will start moaning. It's like if you tell a junkie you are going to have 15% less drugs starting tomorrow, they will not be happy. But there's just no way around it. So. What also needs to happen is uh, the government also needs to introduce incentives to uh, encourage companies and also construction companies, also private households, but also the heavy industry, of course, to, to do something to become more energy efficient so that they can still turn out their products, so that they can still compete, but uh, while um, using and wasting less energy than they are doing now. And I really hope that... Um, the government is also thinking about rolling out um, incentives along these lines. Klaus, what about the allegation from the KMT and other opposition parties that basically by not adding more to 97% of the island's households' electricity bills, they're basically electioneering? 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the KMT still remembers what happened after the 2012 presidential election. That was when my Ingeo was re-elected with a huge share of the vote, and he appeared to be very popular. But then one of the first things he tried to push through and failed was an electricity price hike for everybody. And this was really the start of his downfall and the moment when he stopped being popular. And I think the KMT still remembers quite well what happened to them back then. I mean, it's been 10 years ago now. And um, maybe they are, yeah, <laughs> they are not so happy that the DPP did not fall into this trap. Although I must say, of course, I would also advocate raising electricity rates for everybody because everybody needs to have incentives to become more energy efficient and waste less electricity. That also goes for your air conditioner at home. I mean, private households only make up 18 or 19 percent of the electricity consumption in Taiwan. But but still, that's a lot. And there's a lot of potential for conserving energy. Oh, yeah, indeed. And and there are actually a lot of incentives uh, to conserve electricity. But uh, since versus 10 years ago, we've almost practically doubled our energy usage. And a lot of that is basically the industry doing so. And um, but in terms of everyday people, one of the best ways, I think, uh, well, actually, just put it this way, there's been a lot of Thai power incentives uh, for everyone to conserve electricity on our end. But we only make the lesser half like everybody, you know, households only make the lesser half. I do agree that raising the prices of electricity should be done, but it is at this moment in Taiwan political suicide. We are junkies, as Klaus said, in that aspect, just like water pricing in Taiwan is ridiculously cheap. But at the same time, I think more uh, uh, informing more people how much this is going to cost is also a very important factor. For instance, um, there's been some estimates that said that Thai power stands to lose up to 150 billion yuan at the end of the year if we don't increase rates. So, you know, given that and, and given the huge, you know, uh, rise in energy costs, I think, you know, this is par for the course sooner or later, one political party will have to bite, uh, uh, which will have to take the pain of doing such a thing. And uh, we'll see what happens. But for now, I think the industry is more likely to take it uh, as opposed to the general populace. Moving on now and turning to political news and former KMT chairman Johnny Jung is heading a parliamentary delegation to the United States and they began the visit this week with talks with US lawmakers and government officials in Washington, D.C. The delegation includes KMT lawmakers U Se Huai, Ye Yu Lan and Hong Meng Kai. And according to Jung, the talks are focusing on exchanging ideas on issues including Taiwan's international participation, security issues across the Taiwan Strait and weapons sales. Jung says the meetings are an opportunity for members of the delegation to explain both their opinions and the opinions of the Taiwanese people to U.S. lawmakers and officials, and he hopes they will be beneficial to both sides. But as Jung and company are buddying up to the players in the U.S. Capitol this week, the KMT's top envoy to the United States, Alexander Huang, came out and said that Beijing has the right to claim waters beyond its maritime territory as its exclusive economic zone, and the U.S. has no legal basis to assert that the Taiwan Strait is an international waterway. Whoops, and needless to say, Huang's comments were jumped on by the DPP and pan-green academics alike, but the KMT was quick to set about damage control, issuing a statement saying that it would not accept China's claiming the strait as its internal waters. The statement said the 
KMT welcomes all nations of the world to transit through the Straits International Waterway as they have the legal right to transit by marine vessels and aircraft. And the KMT statement went on to stress that foreign vessels transiting through the Strait will help maintain regional peace and security for Taiwan. And the KMT believes that different interpretations of the issue should be handled by legal experts and academics. So, Klaus, uh, Mr. Huang there may be putting his foot in his mouth. Well, I think context matters, you know, and in the current political climate, I can understand that what Huang said there might sound really bad, but um, we're talking about academics, he is an academic, and if you just look at what he said, technically, it's not all wrong. Um, technically, in the uh, relevant international law, the UNCLOS, the UN Convention of, on the Law of the Sea, there is no such term as international waters. That term is just not in there. And also, China does have the right to declare half of uh, the Taiwan Strait its exclusive economic zone, just as Taiwan has the right to declare the other half its exclusive economic zone. So all of this is quite complicated, and uh, I can see that what he said there maybe has been twisted or has been taken out of context a bit. The question, of course, also is why did he, knowing what the situation is and knowing that he would be speaking for the KMT, why did he feel the need to frame it this way? Especially as there was a KMT delegation in America this week. Yeah, indeed. And that's one of the things that I think everyone's wondering. It's really bad timing for him to... To, to speak this way. I mean, especially, okay, if it was just a regular KMT uh, official, um, then there would not probably be as much uh, consternation. For instance, um, you know, every single week there has been some KMT official, it seems like, uh, making some meme or post that may be considered uh, anti-US or pro-China. Uh, you know, it can be interpreted that way uh, for a long time. Uh, even during Eric Chu's visit to the United States. However, because they're not, you know, the KMT's U.S. envoy, <laughs> it hasn't garnered, you know, international or, or, you know, such attention for such a thing. Uh, I would think this suggests that maybe the KMT is a little less organized uh, than we imagine, that the KMT still has a lot of work to do in terms of its messaging. Because, uh, you know, saying things like this without a huge caveat or trying to reword it, and he could have had plenty of opportunity to reword it in many ways, would, would have gone through without having the KMT to do damage control. Especially when there's so much scrutiny over the KMT actions, you know, in the past couple of years, and particularly during this pandemic um, of being, you know, pro-China and anti-US, all, all, all sorts of issues from, you know, uh, the racto pork issue, but strangely not against racto beef, etc., or, you know, um, against certain vaccines and not others. This, this goes on and on. So I think, you know, Eric Chu either needs to get his party together finally once and for all, or accidents, you know, uh, uh, foibles like these will continue to happen again and again. And Sean, do you think these foibles will affect vote for the KMT in the upcoming November local elections, or do you think the local population will be more focusing on domestic issues? 
I think uh, it's a combination of both things. I mean, these are these are going to be. Uh, I think all these are potential factors. I, I will not. Uh, uh, you know, Taiwan politics is such in a way that it's very hard to guess what will happen in a couple months from now. Considering you know uh, something bigger might happen, and this could be forgotten. But uh, this is just a long. This is this is another uh, in a long string of incidences which, uh, you know, uh, contributes to the stereotype that the KMT is anti-U.S. and uh, pro-CCP or pro-China or perhaps acts in the whims that you know. Uh, the thing is, I, I, it's it's very difficult to believe that Alexander Huang uh, could utter these things without actually thinking. Hmm, maybe uh, it's probably not the best way to to portray it uh, uh, and maybe he should have worded it differently with more tact so <laughs> hard to hard to really really I, I th hard to say if this will be the tipping point but it definitely does add more to the weight what Huang could have said of course is that even though the waters in the Taiwan Strait are someone's exclusive economic zone that does not mean that other nations' ships, including warships, cannot pass through there. I mean, there's this concept of innocent passage, they call it, uh, which means that you can sail through someone's exclusive economic zone if you're just passing through. And that's exactly what happens here. This is also possible even within the nation's territorial waters, like the 12 nautical mile zone. But um, apparently he did, he did not feel the need to stress this point. And so I think he cannot complain about the the backlash that he got now and klaus do you believe that this could affect the elections if the continue if the kmt continues to make such make foibles as sean put it well i think the image of the kmt has been just like sean just described it for quite some time now so i don't think there they it, it so I don't think their popularity in this respect can go much lower. Um, the question is, what will they do to try to turn that around? What kind of candidates will they choose? Will they maybe come to terms with the 1992 consensus and that it's not all what they've been trying to tell everyone for for, for 20 years now? They still have enough time to make some decisions and change the course, but... Under Eric Ju, unlike Johnny Jang before him, we really don't see that happening so far. And the Council of Indigenous Peoples announced on Wednesday that it will not grant the Siraya and other Pingpu tribes constitutionally protected indigenous status. That status entitles the 16 officially recognized indigenous peoples here in Taiwan to specific privileges. And the statement comes following a one-day hearing at the Constitutional Court. Now, the council says it opposes recognizing Pingpu tribes as indigenous people, as it will adversely affect the rights of those who are currently recognized as indigenous people, who are estimated to number some 2.5% of Taiwan's total population. Now, according to the council, there are big differences between the recognized indigenous people and the Pingpu people regarding the degree of assimilation into hand society and culture and exposure to socioeconomic disadvantages. So, Sean, I mean, the Pingpu people, for 30 years, more than 30 years, they've been trying to get on this list. 
this is a complicated issue. Uh, <laughs> uh, I do think that there's definitely a lot of uh, resources being uh, considered here, um, and there has been attempts at certain compromises. Uh, I really feel that the whole entire uh, way that they even uh, categorize uh, indigenous people is faulty, is kind of silly. For instance, it's dependent on you know where your rel- your ancestors or relatives lived uh, before 1945. Um, so if they lived like in certain places that would be considered mountainous before 1945 and then ever since then have been living in the cities you're still considered a mountain aboriginal and then they have their plains aboriginal the the divisions and the whole complexity of how it's even defined is really tough and considering that i am from tainan and my family has been in tainan for 400 years and we also know like the immigration in the past history where you know a lot of uh chinese from uh in China when they came to Taiwan uh, they were you know, only males were allowed for a certain period so who did they mate with and there you go there's a problem that and that means that the Pingpu people can be as much as 1.07 million people but right now it's categorized as roughly 980,000 you know and but the total number of currently categorized indigenous people is about 580,000 so you're looking at an increase in budget you have to earmark about 1.52 billion U.S. dollars uh, to the Indigenous Affairs uh, budget in order to, uh, uh, quote unquote, uh, recognize and add the full recognition for uh, the Pingpu tribes. And, you know, the, the Plains Indigenous people, as they're called, with a population of about 270K, will be deeply affected by this situation and, and not necessarily in a good way. It's going to be a mess. So I don't think this is going to be resolved anytime soon. We're probably looking at another double the time. You know, Taiwan, uh, in past shows, we mentioned how Taiwan sort of opens it door, its doors slowly. In this case, I think I understand why the Council of Indigenous People will oppose, you know, uh, uh, suddenly more than doubling, uh, basically tripling their size overnight. Uh, and, and that means all sorts of resources and allocate and how that's going to be allocated would be in an utter mess when, as is, they already have a lot of uh, uh, challenges. I think Sean is completely right. It is a very complicated situation. And I mean, at the core of this um, decision that the Constitutional Court has to make is do the Pingpu people have a right to be included in those categories of indigenous people who fall under a specific category of the relevant laws here? And uh, I mean, this is not up uh, for us to decide. Definitely not for me. I'm a European guy living in Taipei. What do I know about Pingpu people living in Tainan? But the Constitutional Court will make a decision sooner or later. I think it's a matter of a few weeks or a month at most. I mean, that's why they held this hearing now. And I'm sure that they will weigh all the pros and cons. And unlike Supreme Courts in some other countries, the Taiwanese Constitutional Court is still widely being accepted as making sensible rulings. And then we will have a new basis from which we can discuss. So what I think is quite interesting is that Basically, people are lining up now to be recognized as Taiwanese indigenous, which is a huge change from the situation 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So these government policy of increasing the status of Taiwanese indigenous in this respect, 
I think seems to be working. Question is, is that only because of financial benefits or also because of another status that um, being recognized as an indigenous Taiwanese has by now? Oh, yeah, indeed. And actually, I forgot to make a point, which is earlier when I said about how my family has been in Tainan for over 400 years. Um, it's easy to say that uh, we definitely have aboriginals or indigenous in our family as well. And so we technically could also be Pingpu people. But the reality is that we in our general family uh, or, or my general relatives under uh, uh, the, the Sioux family name, uh, very few, if any of them, still practice any indigenous practices or even speak indigenous languages. So, you know, if we're supposed to get financial benefits from this, I think it would be might be weird uh, because of how broadly and how many people Pingpu people there are. And I do think that the Council of Indigenous Peoples have pointed this out, which is the fact that there is quite a lot of Pingpu people that have uh, very uh, few, you know, I definitely don't have, you know, indigenous clothes of, you know, the Pingpu tribes in in my home. I don't, I've never worn them. I've never attended any, you know, so, so yeah, as Klaus says, it will, it may encourage other people to join in, but there's also a lot of people that really have very little to do with, uh, even though that may be a part or a portion of their history, there's just very little uh, connection. So I think there needs to be some sort of better definition and classification uh, to work out. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Monday cheered Tuvalu's foreign minister and it expressed its thanks to the diplomatic ally after the minister walked out of a United Nations conference to China blocking the participation of three Taiwanese members of his delegation. Now, Simon Coffey pulled out of the conference on oceans and the law of the sea in Portugal that same day to show solidarity with Taiwan. The move came after China challenged the accreditation of three Taiwanese members of Tuvalu's delegation to the conference, which is taking place in Lisbon this week. China is on the credentials committee and demanded the removal of the three Taiwanese delegates and also threatened to revoke the entire delegation's credentials if they did not comply. Now, Kofei decided to remove himself and the three delegates, but he expressed a desire for Tuvalu's remaining delegation to participate in the conference. Now, the foreign ministry here in Taiwan says each UN member state's delegation has the right to decide its members, and a UN credentials committee has no right over the delegation's composition. However, the ministry did not disclose the identity of the three Taiwanese members of Tuvalu's delegation. Beijing, meanwhile, accused Taiwan of attempting to squeeze into the conference by engaging in petty maneuvers in the international arena and acting as followers of other countries will only serve to demean themselves. So, Sean, now, Tuvalu walked out of a UN conference because he had three questionable, maybe according to China, Taiwanese delegates on its delegate panel. Sure, I actually think it should happen. I mean, uh, in the sense that I think these strategies and actions should be done by Taiwan allies. Uh, I I thank Tuvalu for doing this because, uh, you know, it is quite 
it is quite ridiculous that, you know, just because you may be born from Taiwan or you may be a Taiwan national that you cannot participate or you cannot go to the United Nations or visit, you know, um, it's it's been one of the big problems we've had uh, for a long time. The United Nations claims that it wants to represent uh, most of the world, but it is excluding 23 million, 24 million people in a vibrant democracy. And considering that these are, um, you know, <laughs> this is the United Nations Ocean Conference, right? So, I mean, China isn't exactly the most uh, 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 biggest weight in this sort of thing, whereas, you know, Tuvalu is definitely uh, a very important nation in these in these matters, considering, you know, it's a nation where, you know, the ocean and you know, is is heavily they're heavily dependent on the ocean because I mean, uh, you know, climate change and all these things are affecting them deeply. Even though they, they as a nation, are uh, population-wise, is not that big. So it is kind of funny that China can just come in and just tell them like, okay, well, you know what, you have to run your your delegation the way we like it. And I think these petty moves will just over time. Uh, you know, just add up to the long list of maneuvers that China has done, which is quite distasteful. And I don't know if people will remember particularly this aspect, but it will definitely fit into that air that China has been always been uh, quite a bully when it comes to international affairs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it you can see this as kind of a nifty move on the part of Taiwan, trying to get Taiwanese delegates in there by way of Tuvalu. But um, you can also understand from China's point of view that they would see this as a loophole and they want to close that as soon as possible. But the important, the bigger picture here, just as Sean said, is the way that Taiwanese nationals are being treated by the UN in general and not just delegates at events like this, but also Taiwanese tourists who want to visit the Palace of Nations, the UN uh, compound in Geneva, Switzerland. They cannot enter with because... Their ID is not being accepted and there is so many humiliating instances here that I agree there need to be more incidents where you can point the finger at and hope that word gets around that what the UN is doing here just runs runs counter to all the principles that it um, is always uh, yeah, saying it, it wants to uphold. And Klaus, do you think more countries could walk out of UN events? Well, symbolic gestures are just that. They are merely symbolic, so they don't actually change much immediately, but they are gestures and they they um, will be noticed. So I don't see countries other than Taiwan's allies walking out yet. I don't think the solidarity has reached that level. But um, as for those allies, yeah, I can imagine there could be similar, similar um, incidents like this taking place. And several European trade offices here in Taiwan have recently penned a letter to leading cabinet officials, including Premier Su Jung Chung, expressing their concern about negative effects of the bilingual 2030 policy having on European languages here in Taiwan. The letter was signed by 16 trade offices, including the German, Czech, Belgian, French and Italian offices in Taipei, and they argue that the promotion of English may come at the heavy cost of other languages and reduce Taiwan's exposure outside of the Anglo-Saxon sphere. So let's begin with the envoy's letter. And Klaus, as a native German speaker, what's your take on this letter? Well, first of all, 
We need to be aware that there's only one country left in the European Union right now that speaks English, and that's Ireland. So English appears to have lost some weight in EU matters right now. That's why all those EU representatives got together and, and wrote this. Um, their main worry that they're expressing is that universities will be encouraged to offer more and more classes in English only in the context of the bilingual policy, and that this would also apply to classes in which other European languages are taught. So, for example, they find it worrying to see Italian or Danish classes being taught in English. I must say, I cannot quite understand why they see this as such a big point of concern. And also there was a reply, which you have also shared with us before, Gavin, so we've all read it, which uh, I think clarifies some of these concerns quite well. Yeah, I I actually agree with Klaus here. I I, I do I have a bit of a consternation. The reason is because of this. Uh, for students, let's let's use an example. Let's use let's say high school exchange. Okay, um, students that have to become exchange students that go abroad, uh, they actually have to pass something called like an ELTIS test, which is actually English. It doesn't matter if you're going to Finland or you're going to uh, uh, Germany. They have to take an ELTIS test. And what is this ELTIS test? It t determines whether or not they can uh, speak some basic level of English. And the purpose. And by the way, this is even in Japan. Uh, you know, this is just to, just so students can converse with, let's say, the representatives there if they have an issue or problem, uh, if, especially if they are not well versed in the local language of where they are. So. You know, it's 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 not really that bad of a thing. In fact, if there's more English speakers in Taiwan, that actually enables more exchange students to go to these other countries like Germany, France. Uh, well, Ireland already speaks English, but, you know, like Luxembourg. Okay, and then they can actually come back and learn the local languages and then add more to the repertoire. So in a way, um, English isn't so bad for them to learn. If you only speak Mandarin, uh, then you don't qualify to be, let's say, a high school exchange student in many countries that don't speak English. So I think in a sense, um, I understand why they sort of wrote this, but the reality is, as the National Development Council of Taiwan has said, that you know there are many foreign language uh, uh, classes that are non-English. Uh, they said that Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Slovenian are taught in schools, and that 668 classes of European languages were offered, and 690 classes, an increase, was offered in 2022 versus 2021, which was the 668 I mentioned earlier. So I think, you know, um, encouraging more foreign languages, encouraging, you know, bilingual uh, 2030 is not a bad thing. It just means Taiwanese will be more aware of what goes on around the world. They'll be more interested and they'll have a higher capacity to learn even more languages. So I think it's going to be a win-win. I don't think this is going to be a lose situation, lose-lose uh, situation. Yeah. And Klaus, what's interesting in the response that you mentioned there, where the, the basically the National Development Council said there are currently 14 foreign languages taught in high schools. Now, when I was a nipper at the English equivalent of a high school, they only taught two foreign languages. So 14 is quite good going. 
There are special programs funded by European governments like the German government to uh, offer, in this case, German classes in uh, Taiwanese high schools. I think there's some support for teacher training and so on. So this is actively being encouraged. Um, interesting about this reply was also that they pointed out that the universities on that level, it's up to them which classes they want to decide to teach in English only and that that would most likely apply to um, engineering and, and business and um, probably least of all to um, other language classes. Finally, I also want to apologize to the people of Malta because they are the second country in the EU that use English as a official language and they, of course, should not be forgotten. Right, there you go. <laughs> to to our, our listeners in Malta there, Klaus just apologized. Anyway, before we go this week, an exhibition in Tainan titled Ghosts and Hells, the Underworld in Asian Art has been causing quite a bit of excitement and controversy. Open day ticket sales this past Saturday were suspended twice at the Tainan Art Museum due to it attracting so many visitors that it caused overcrowding. Now, according to the museum, a very, very, very long line of people were already waiting to see it before it opened its doors, and over 1,000 people had entered the show within an hour of its doors actually being opened at 10 a.m. By noon, the museum says it had registered over 4,000 visitors. That, as the exhibition itself, can only apparently accommodate a maximum of 200 people. That resulted in the museum being forced to suspend both physical and online ticket sales before reopening them at 3.30, only to have to suspend them again within an hour as visitor numbers continued to climb. Ticket sales actually resumed at 7, 6 p.m. rather after all that. Now, while the exhibit attracted the masses with its exhibits depicting elements and creatures from the Asian occult, it also resulted in criticism from religious groups here. Christian groups expressed opposition to the show for displaying subjects which they found blasphemous, while some devotees of Taiwan's religious traditions slammed the exhibition for overstepping the boundaries of superstition. So, Sean, I mean, there you go. It's an occult exhibition. Of course, it's not being held in the ghost month, which might have seen turnout be slightly lower. I think this was done actually on purpose because, you know, if this was done on Ghost Month, there might be a little bit more controversy. Uh, but I do think that it is a little bit silly. Uh, you know, there was a uh, <laughs> the, the reason I thought it was silly is because um, there has been religious fears of these things. But I mean, the exhibition itself, you know, it was called by the Bread of Life Christian group, uh, a sorcery. And it kind of reminds me of how in the 90s, Christian groups uh, had a satanic panic over games like Magic the Gathering and even Pokemon, you know, as if Pikachu is, um, you know, Satan's, uh, 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 you know, creation. Uh, I think that these groups are acting in an unhealthy way, panicking over nothing, considering there are widely pictures of this exhibition, and they're basically just dressed up uh, uh, dolls and and what have you, uh, dressed in, let's say, uh, Qing Dynasty clothing, like Jiangsi, right? Uh, you know, it's nothing that I think is remotely like sorcery uh you know it is 2022 uh accusing an art exhibition these this, and let's let's not you know jump around it this is just artwork you know these are things that people made you know it's i, I wonder if these church groups also or other groups also get you know, mad when someone makes a horror film you know using similar quality of 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 art or do they did they get mad when the movie aliens came out you know <laughs> uh, you know these are just basically props that they made and it's actually interesting because it is part of the culture you know here so getting mad about this entire thing actually only 
advertised it because they were complaining about it earlier, getting really mad, and that actually sparked a lot of curiosity. Uh, uh, and and this isn't even that big of an exhibition. There's only four rooms. Each can only hold 50 people. So, of course, it was going to be a full house instantly, uh, especially when the religious groups, you know, came out and spoke about it. It's kind of a the Streisand effect. You know, if you mm-hmm. didn't want something to happen, why advertise for it? <laughs> and they just advertised it really well. Yeah, it also kind of shows the attractiveness of um, Taiwanese folk culture and folk beliefs in the context of popular culture in general. I mean, for a lot of people, apparently it's easy to to make a link there and to say, well, this um, looks somehow meaningful or at least interesting for me. Let's check it out. And the Christian groups and churches, on the other hand, seem to be lacking in that um, respect. And they are just not, don't have anything as attractive to offer. So maybe it's a bit of jealousy surfacing here. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if this means that the last time we saw the um, Christian groups speaking out and coming out and protesting was in the context of the same-sex marriage debate. Does this mean now that they are looking for other subjects to to jump onto and to make their voices heard? Will we will we see more of them of this tiny minority in the future? I I certainly hope not in this aspect. But on the other hand, I mean, uh, the Tainan Art Museum did say that people shouldn't bring wooden swords or glutinous rice because the the zombies inside uh, uh, would be, you know, it would terrify them. So if the churches want to do anything, sure, bring some wooden swords and glutinous rice. But then again, they would be practicing more in Taiwanese folklore. (laughs) And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Klaus Badenhagen. It was great to be here. Thanks, Gavin. And Sean Su. Great to be back. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.